optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, boys and girls, mademoiselle et monsieur. Wait, wait. This is Tim Ferriss recording in Montreal, Quebec. The Tim Ferriss Show, each and every episode, is focused on deconstructing world-class performers from all different fields. And this episode features Blake Mykoski. You can say hi to Blake on the socials, Twitter and so on, at Blake Mykoski, M-Y-C-O-S-K-I-E. We've known each other for quite a few years. Blake is the founder and chief shoe giver of Tom's. And that makes him the person behind the one-for-one -one business model, which helps a person in need with every product that is purchased. But there are many, many stats and some very impressive numbers related to his bio and his business, and we will get to that shortly. I'm going to keep this initial intro very, very short. In this episode, we cover a lot. We talk about early entrepreneurial ventures. Let's try that again in English. Early entrepreneurial. I think that's French. English? <laughs> All right. Anyway, early entrepreneurial ventures, the power of journaling, how the stool analogy changed Blake's life, lessons from Ben Franklin, and much, much more. This episode comes from my new television show, Fearless, 10 episodes. It's a full season where I interview world-class performers on stage in front of a studio audience 
about how they've overcome doubt, conquered fear, and made their hardest decisions. You can watch the entire first episode of this TV show, Fearless, with illusionist David Blaine, where he actually performs magic on stage with guests from the audience as well. You can watch that for free at att.net forward slash fearless. That's att.net forward slash fearless. To watch all of the episodes, and a lot of them are physical or involve demos on stage, please visit directtvnow.com. Only one T in that, not direct space TV, but direct TV, one word, directtvnow.com, or you can go to tim.blog forward slash fearless. And we've recorded three hours of material for this particular session with Blake. All of it was awesome. We used one hour for TV. So this podcast episode is not a duplicate. It is almost entirely brand new content that did not appear on television. So I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did with Blake Mykoski. Welcome to Fearless. I'm your host, Tim Ferriss. And on this stage, we'll be deconstructing world-class performers of all different types to uncover the specific tactics and strategies they've used to overcome doubt, tackle their hardest decisions, and ultimately succeed on their own terms. By show of hands, how many of you guys own a few pairs of shoes? That is everybody in the room. How many of you own around 10 pairs of shoes? All right, more than half. How many of you do not own a single pair of shoes? All right, that's a big fat zero. My guest tonight has built a company that has given away more than 60 million pairs of shoes to those who need them most. During a trip to South America, he recognized a unique opportunity to blend business and philanthropy. Since its founding, Tom's has given away millions of shoes, helped to store eyesight, and provided safe drinking water to those in need across the globe. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage the founder of Tom's, Blake Mykoski. Good to see you, man. Watch your uh, How did your mom and dad differ in terms of parenting styles? Ooh, that's a good question. I think my dad was more serious and, and more kind of intellectual in the things that he taught us. And I think my mom was much more, you know, kind of hands-on, caring. I mean, they both were very caring, but but I think that my mom's you know, kind of was just so over-attentive uh, to our, and I was a first child, and so I think the first child gets that, no matter what family it is, because um, the parents are so afraid of messing up. I know I am. I have a two-year-old. So, uh, but no, but my dad was always like, kind of like the moral, you know, kind of, you know, that he was the true north right. in the family, and, and he kind of was a disciplinarian when that needed to happen, and he was kind of the, you know, the intellectual, I would say. But what was interesting is when my mom became, you know, this best-selling author and every publishing company in the world's flying to Arlington, Texas to try to court her. And, and then my dad's realizing like, wow, this is like totally changing our, our family's, you know, kind of the whole financial life. Financial. Um, the coolest thing I think I learned from my dad was like, he like, you know, cut down on his practice 50%, started supporting her, traveling with her, going to the talk shows, infomercials. Like he, it was a total role reversal. And I think that really taught me a lot about relationships because it was like such a beautiful thing to see, even though I wasn't like, in, like I wasn't really understanding all of what I was seeing at that age. But now 
It was like, you know, he, she was there putting him through medical school. I mean, my parents literally used to sell their blood to go pay their rent. They were so poor during medical school. I mean, they have all these stories of being in New Orleans at Tulane and like going and, on, and my mom always says, my dad could get more money for his blood because it was more rare than hers and that used to piss her off. And, <laughs> and like all, I mean, all these things. That, but she was, this, she was, you know, working, you know, you know, as a waitress and working here and there and everything to put him through medical school. So it was all about his career for the longest time. But the moment that my mom created something and it was this, and it had so much energy, Instead of him being threatened by that, which I think a lot of men would have been, sure. he said, this is amazing. It's your turn now. And, and I think that's my parents have been married for 47 years. And uh, so, yeah, it's, they, they didn't curve it. So I, I think, you know, that was, that was something, seeing that was another part of that whole, that whole experience that really had a big impression on me, not only what my mom created, but the support my dad played in that. Was the cookie stand your first business experience? I think so, and that seems like such a cliche, doesn't it? <laughs> there you go. Um, that was early day cookies. Um, I was a little older when I was selling them myself, um, but I was trained at a young age. You know, it, it is almost like kind of like one of those, I mean, I feel like there's some great cliches in entrepreneurship, and they're cliches because they're, you know, they're cliches for a reason. Like having your first business be the lemonade stand or the cookie stand, yep. you hear that. But yeah, I mean, like, I, uh, at a little older age than that, uh, my mom made these amazing cookies, and I recognized my grandmother lived on a golf course. And so on Saturdays and Sundays, you have, you know, hundreds of people who mostly know my grandmother, who is a real character, uh, coming through the golf course. And so if I sat there right on the eighth hole, I think she was on the green, and I was, you know, dressed cute and all that, like, I could sell anything, right? And, uh, and the great thing about this business model was, is I convinced my mom to make all the cookies, but to not charge me for making them. So I had zero cost of goods sold, 100% profit margins. Uh, and, Your mom is a terrible cookie supplier. Yeah, it was a fantastic uh, business while it lasted. But I did that a couple summers, so I built up some clientele, and they liked the cookies so much that they wouldn't just buy them for that eating occasion, they would buy them and put them in the freezer to have for weeks. So I, I had a pretty good thing going. I think that was about when I was like nine or 10. Um, but yeah, it was that, was that was the first, I think, entrepreneurial venture. The second one was, and what uh, very few people uh, know, because it's not, I don't think it's really been that public, but my dad, when I was say 18, freshman year in college, at this point, I had never had a, a real job, as my dad says. Like, I mean, I was training to be a professional tennis player. So every single day after school, I trained from 3.30 till literally bedtime. And I was incredibly obsessed with tennis. And uh, my parents totally supported that. But then when I went to college, I was playing college tennis. And, and I remember my dad, after the season was over, and he said, you know, this summer I really think you need a job. I had a younger brother and sister. My brother and sister had, like, they were eight years younger and four years younger. They had jobs at, like, the dry cleaners or the, you know, the clothing store at the mall or the, the, at all these different places, and they were much younger than me. And, and my dad's like, you know, you got a college scholarship. You're doing your thing. But this summer, like, you need to have a job. And I was like, okay. Like, you know, I wasn't really excited about that, but I, I, I said fine. And it wasn't because I didn't like to work. I mean, I worked really hard, but I worked hard on something I cared about, and that was tennis. And so I 
talked to people and said, What's the, how can you make the most amount of money when you're 18 years old in a part-time job? Because I still need to practice tennis. And the answer I got time and time again was to get a job at a restaurant that had high price points, um, but that had a, but a pretty quick turnover. So not fine dining, mm-hmm. but like a, you know, but, but, a, but a more expensive restaurant um, than, than kind of fast service. And so there was Who this- Who were you asking for advice? I, I was asking like anyone in college that I had, that I thought was older than me that had made some money or that had any, any form of, um, you know, like they had some work experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and friends of mine who were older than me in school had done that. And, and had, some of them were even putting themselves through school that way. And so there's this restaurant called Papado's in Texas. I don't know if you've been there. Um, it's a couple people. So it's like seafood. Um, anyways, it's, it's pretty expensive, but the tables turn fast. And so I went, and, uh, and even though I had no experience, and some people, this is their career. I mean, this isn't a part-time job. It's that good of a restaurant job. But luckily, the hiring manager was a huge tennis fan. And so we talked about tennis, and she played in college at a rival school that I was playing at and all this. And so I was like, I can do this job. Like, I mean, I really had the seller on me doing it. So I got the job. So I came home, and I was like to my dad, I was like, I got a job. Not get any job, but I got like a job. I'm going to make like a lot of money this summer. And, uh, and so the next part of if you work in a restaurant is memorizing the menu. Well, I hate memorizing things. I mean, I just like that is like the worst for me. Like studying and cramming for tests is not my thing. And so after like two or three days of this, I was like, I just, this is miserable. Like I, I'm not going to be able to memorize this menu. And I found out that you don't even get paid the first two weeks because it's training. And my summer's only like oh. nine weeks long. So yeah. I'm like, that's like 15%. I'm not even getting paid. So this is, this is sounding less and less appealing every day. So... This is where the moment came in. I think this was truly my first entrepreneurial kind of synapses went off in my brain. My, in our house, um, next to our house, there was a tennis court. And um, I clearly had you know, learned to become a great tennis player. And I knew that there were a lot of kids in our neighborhood that could use tennis lessons and maybe even some other adults that wanted tennis lessons. And, and we had this tennis court we could use any time. And I knew how much my parents paid for tennis lessons for me growing up. I mean, it was a huge investment for me. And so I just said, before I go into work this next week, this weekend, I made these flyers. And I put SMU, college tennis player, you know, training for the next eight weeks, kids, adults, classes, da, 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 the whole thing, the same way as you'd see it like a country club. And I made 5,000 flyers and I put them in, literally it took me like two days, every single mailbox in the entire neighborhood. And, uh, and then I, at that point, I had my own uh, phone line, and I put, changed my vo- voicemail to, like, Blake's Tennis Camp or something. <laughs> and, um, and I started getting calls. And, like, within a week, I had, like, every hour of the day booked. And instead of making, um, like, I was charging, I was, I was, I think at Papado's with tips and stuff, I had averaged where I was going to be making, like, maybe $14 or $15 an hour, which would have been really good back then. But teaching tennis, because I had each kid paying you know, like $15 an hour and I have five kids at a time, I was making like 80 bucks an hour. And so I uh, had this set up. My dad came home. He thought I was supposed to be at work at Papado's and he sees me teaching like a whole group of kids and my mom delivering cookies and lemonade to their parents. And he goes, what's going on here? And uh, I said, you know, this, I said, this is still a job. 
and, and, I, and I'm making four times money than I was. So that was the moment where I really felt like I kind of started my entrepreneurial journey. Now, did your dad want you to get a job to earn money, or was it because he wanted you to have the experience of, like, reporting to someone else? I mean, and all clearly that? it was the latter, but I trumped him with earning money. He, he, he couldn't argue with right, an results. 18-year-old making yeah. $80 an hour. I mean, it was crazy. Every time I'm on an airplane, the first thing I do, if it's not getting a cup of coffee, is, is start journaling. Uh, I, have, I have a massive safe in my office that has hundreds and hundreds of journals. Um, we're actually making a documentary film about the whole Tom's experience, and a big part of the film is going back and just grabbing random oh, cool. journals and reading these entries, and you're like, I can't believe I was saying this or thinking this. Um, <laughs> because you tend, or at least I tended to be more, even though I'd confess all my fears, I tended to kind of use the journal as a way of positively setting the tone for the next day, the next week, the next month, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it's something that I, I love doing and, and it's uh, something I'm really glad I did because I think it helps me understand my life, which I think is good because understanding your past is how you can really, I think, be more proactive for your future. Totally. I have, so this is a shared habit. So I have probably about eight bookshelves worth of Oh, wow. Journals. And yeah. I've, I've kept them all since around the same age, 15, 16, but it started with weightlifting. Same yeah. thing. I wanted to track my progress and to be able to understand <laughs> what worked and wow. what didn't and so on. But it's turned into what I've heard described. I think her name is Julia Cameron. She wrote a book called The Artist's Way. She described journaling, the first type, the, the confessional, yeah. as spiritual windshield wipers. Meaning... You get that down, especially in the morning. Uh-huh. And the way I look at it is sort of trapping my monkey mind and my anxieties on the page yes. so that I can get on with the day. Yep. And the morning journaling habit was actually introduced to me by, and by the way, guys, like the, the morning journaling specifically isn't something I started until about, I want to say, three years ago. Uh, at the recommendation, because I think as a lot of people, I had been journaling for a long time and then I stopped for a while. Yeah. And I would only use it for goal setting. Yeah, interesting. But I didn't do that other component, yeah. which I think is so so critical. And I was like, ah, that's like the rah-rah, positive thinking. Like, uh, I don't want to even get yep. involved in the secret. What, uh, like, I don't want to yep. deal with it. So I then ran into a guy named Brian Koppelman, who's a screenwriter, along with his writing partner. They did The Illusionist, uh, Solitary Man, uh, Ocean's 13, Billions, the co-creators yep. of that show, which is a current huge hit. He does it every morning, yeah. and he said, you have to start morning journaling. So since it was coming from him, yeah. I started, and it was immediate, yeah. the difference in not just my performance, but also my well-being. And well, I think, and I haven't heard the spiritual windshield wiper, which I like that, that term, because that's what it kind of does for me, is it, it in anything that is like, like controlling my thoughts, it's like stress-related or like, you know, or I feel like I have too many things on my mind or my to-do list or everything. Once I get on the page, then I can just like singularly focus on the most important things of the day. You know, and I know you've spoken about like do the first, you know, two most important things mm-hmm. right away in your day. And by journaling, A, it helps me organize what are those really things. Because when you're writing about it, you kind of, it start the, you know, whatever's getting the most attention typically is the thing you, know, you don't want to have, have to do with it, you need to do. Um, but, it, but it really does, I think, help you clean your day. And then at the end of the day, too, I think it also can serve as a way to kind of allow yourself to relax and, and get ready for, for bed and, like, 
get over with the day, if you've had some stuff on your mind. So it's interesting by writing it, you would think it would make it even more uh, something you'd be thinking about. But I find like once I've written it and I let it go and I close the book, it's like the problems are in the book and they're no yeah. longer with me anymore. Totally. And, if the, and if it's a positive thing, then I think it is potentially reinforcing that. Mm -hmm. I never forget this. It's so interesting how going back to these little moments in your life that can really change trajectory and how oftentimes it can be someone uh, that you meet or you hear, listen, or listen to, or a book you read. So there was a guy named Bob Dedman, and Bob Dedman has, has passed now, but um, he was a self-made billionaire, um, and he gave more money to SMU and University of Texas, I think, than anyone ever. Uh, he literally grew up in a trailer park, and he started off as a lawyer, and then ultimately uh, where he made his real fortune was he recognized that um, golf clubs, uh, country clubs, um, were becoming more and more popular in the 70s and the 80s. But it was very expensive to maintain the golf course and the restaurant and everything, and you made money by selling the real estate around it. So what he started doing is creating clubs um, with multiple courses but one crew that could service multiple courses. So now you only need one greenskeeper for three clubs and three times the amount of real estate sales, one kitchen, you know, all these things. And it became this thing called Club Corp. And so when he passed away, he was the largest owner of golf, golf courses and tennis courts in the world. And he's this amazing guy. And he lives in Dallas, Texas, and he loved tennis. So he'd come out and watch our tennis matches. And he was kind of centric billionaire guy. He'd watch our tennis matches. And, uh, and, for whatever reason, um, I forget what it was. I think it was raining. We couldn't practice that day. And our coach said, you know what? Um, you guys have seen Mr. Deadman many times watching the matches. Since it's raining today, we can't practice. We're going to watch a video of a commencement speech that he gave for the MBA program at University of Texas a couple weeks ago. And just so you can have some more frame of reference of how wise this guy is. And he, the speech was basically about having a life path and thinking of your life as a stool, and every stool has three or four legs. And what are they going to be the legs of your life? What are going to be your path? I mean, one is your talents. One is your interest. One is, you know, all these different things. I can't remember exactly what it was. But I remember leaving that day, and I just hurt myself, thinking, you know, I don't think my stool is going to be a professional tennis player. And I actually think my life is about other things. And I started recognizing these kind of talents. You know, talents was definitely self-discipline and all these different things. And so... I remember watching that video and having peace at the idea of not continuing down this tennis path. Another great Ben Franklin story that I've read that actually had a huge impact on early days of Tom's. I was reading the biography, uh, one of the ones many written. And um, so when he had the Farmer's Almanac, right? Mm -hmm. And that was, a lot of people don't recognize that, that is, that's how he made his first fortune was, was through the Almanac. And most of the things we know Ben Franklin for actually happened after he retired age 40. So he sold the Farmer's Almanac, had money at the time, retired, and then all this inventions and then came out of curiosities afterwards. But one of my favorite stories was is there was this um, person that went advertise in the Farmer's Almanac. And um, Ben Franklin did not agree with his ethics and his morals and his ideals, but he needed to take advertising money to keep his almanac going. And so what he decided to do was that night, he, instead of sleeping in his bed in his home, he slept in his office on the floor with only a piece of bread to eat. 
And he woke up the next morning and was just as happy as he was the day before. And that's when he said he would never take advertising dollars from someone he didn't believe with. And so that was a huge thing with me with early days at Tom's is like, we will, we will stay 100% focused on the mission, whether we make it or not, because we're going to be, we're going to be happier doing it the way we feel that was, is the right thing to do than cutting corners to make extra money. And that, when I read that, that was a huge thing. So that, I was just going to say, not only that, but that you can live with the worst case scenario. Exactly. Right. That was, that's, that's what he proved. So this himself. is going, so we're, we're going to keep kind of peeling back the onion here because I mentioned stoicism earlier. Part of the reason I suspect Ben Franklin did that is he was a huge Seneca fan. Yes. And Seneca specifically, he has a collection of letters called the Moral Letters to Lucilius. Don't worry, this is going to be long. <laughs> and there's letter, I think it's 13, called On Feasting, On Festivals and Fasting. That's it. And I know the name because I've read it so many times. And part of it is set aside a few days, I'm making up the time period, every month where you will go with the, the cheapest of dress, the scantiest of fear, sort of the roughest of bed, yeah. asking yourself all the while, is this the condition I so feared? Yes. And uh, I have a close buddy, uh, Kevin Kelly, who's amazing. Kevin Kelly is the founding editor of Wired Magazine and has done a million just incredible things. And what he would say to himself to kind of bring it into contemporary times, because he'd spent a lot of time backpacking as a kid, and he was like, I was always thrilled, even as just like a dirtbag college student backpacker, to have sleeping bag and oatmeal. He's like, as long as I have sleeping bag and oatmeal, yeah. I'm fine. I don't yeah. have to sell out. So this isn't selling out. This is dropping out. And, and so, but I had started this thing, and it was, it was kind of working, and I had employees, and I had this responsibility, and that felt much more real than going to class, like, you know, talking about Descartes or whoever, whichever philosopher I was talking about at the time. Um, and so I, uh, I remember calling my dad and I was really nervous because my dad, as we talked about before, you know, is this, this really accomplished doctor, you know, did, I mean, how many years of school, college, medical school, you know, residency. I mean, he had like made a life of education and I was going to tell him after 18 months that I was going to drop out of college. And, um, and I was also the oldest grandchild of, of all my other cousins and stuff too. So I was like the one everyone was looking at, you know, and, uh, and I, you know, his response to that was, was like the most amazing. And to this day, I still am kind of baffled to understand how his response was this way. But he basically said, you know, you've, you've, t- you've taken on this thing. Uh, you have a responsibility now to a lot of people. Um, and it seems like you're having a lot of fun. And so I think it's a great idea. And I was just like, this is a joke. Like, huh? I, I have mean, all like, this script yeah. left. I mean, I've been working like a month on the preparation for this call. Like, I was too scared to do it in person. Yeah. Like, I did it. I mean, even though my parents only lived an hour away, like, I, I did this as a phone call just because if at any point in time I need just to hang up and get out of it, I could. And and he was totally supportive. And and I think you know it's a big testimony to my dad and kind of his belief of like giving people the chance to to fail and to to learn. Um, and uh, 
but it was, it was an amazing point because his confidence or his ability for me to kind of be curious and try something. And then also him stressing how I had really, now that I had employees, I had taken on more responsibility than just doing something for myself. It was mm-hmm. bigger than just me. Right. And that has really stayed with me through all the different businesses. And I think that's why we invest so much in our employees at Tom's and in their full well-being, not just in their financial well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and also the point was my dad and I made then too was I was going to be on my own financially. So if I dropped out, like I was being supported by my parents when I was in college, as most, a lot of kids are, not every kid has that, that fortune, but many of the kids in my school were, but it's like, okay, if you're dropping out, like your business needs to support you. Like you need to, to be able to support yourself. And so that was a real difficult reality at first too, and which created a lot of fear and a lot of like, oh my gosh, now like they have to make this work because my parents aren't supporting me anymore. And, and, uh, but that also is a great motivation. I think that was a great move on his part. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I've got to keep your feet to the fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> no parental safety net. One of the things, a question I get all the time when I speak at universities now is, um, they talk about uh, people choosing to become entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, in my opinion, and a lot of people will disagree with me, that that is, you cannot choose to be an entrepreneur like you choose to be a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher. Like, I mean, if you go into it saying, okay, I'm going to study entrepreneurship and my career path is becoming an entrepreneur, that is, I think, a recipe sometimes for disaster. Because then what happens if you've chosen that path and you don't have anything that's bothering you, you don't have any itches you need to scratch, then all of a sudden you're, you're looking at the world of like, how can I make money? How can I create something that people want? But it's never really your want. It's never really your dying passion, your thing that you're willing to sacrifice everything to solve in the world. And so you end up creating a business that is to make money and to do all these things that they taught you in entrepreneurial textbooks, but it doesn't ever have that that same intensity of the person that just is trying to solve a problem and then ends up creating a business. Yeah, and it's, I should point out too, this is really, this is super important. This is, because uh, I've spoken to classes as well about entrepreneurship, and you, there are cases of people, say, dropping out of college and becoming huge successes, right? Yeah. But there are also a lot who do not. Of course. Right? So it's not necessarily causation. Right? No. And then you not. also have a lot of people who say, go to a Harvard MBA program, and they do go in to become an entrepreneur, and there are successful examples. But my position has always been exactly what you said. If I'm at least scratching my own itch, I know for a fact there is one customer. Yes. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, it's got I know one. for a fact there's one customer. It's like with the four-hour work week, you know, my first book, I, uh, I went in to find the book that yeah. covered it, and I couldn't find it. I was like, all right, there's Jack Welch over here, How to Build a Fortune 500 Company, not interested. Then there's like, money's not important, give away everything. I'm like... Not sure I'm in that camp either. Yeah. Where's the thing in the middle? Yeah. And uh, so th- it was. It just ended up be a collection of those experiments. Yeah. Uh, for myself. My Which, by the way, yeah. I mean, I, I, since you brought it up, I, I want to make sure at least I was able to say this on the show is like, I mean, I read Four Hour Work Week right when I started Tom's, and there's so many things that I took from that book that allowed Tom's to have this incredible growth. With We never had investors, which is like unheard of when you go from zero to 500 million in seven years. And, and the reason we were able to build so rapidly is we outsourced so many things. And I never would have understood how you could operate so lean had I not read that book. 
So Thank you. Um, I think that I'd sent Tim many pictures of the, over the years of me going like this with the number four because, and it's usually like when I'm sailing or playing polo or doing something <laughs> fun because I'm like, there's a lot of people that we've outsourced a lot of this work to that are working really hard right now, but I'm not, and things are continuing to do great. And, and I know that wasn't the only purpose of the book, but it really made an impact on me and a lot of our early staff all read it because when you're building a company, when you try to do everything yourself, yeah. it's really hard to grow as fast as you, as you can. Mm-hmm. But the minute you kind of let go of some of that control and you're outsourcing as many different things as you can, yeah, your margin might not be the same initially, but you can prove the model, you can get the top-line sales, and then you can always come back and improve the margin later by bringing that stuff in-house. Yeah, but anyways, thank you. Well, thank you. That makes my day. So one of the things, um, I think one of the negatives of starting as an entrepreneur at age 18 is you're so focused on your work that you have very uh, little time for other stuff in your life. And I was seeing that my friends were having these much more kind of fun social lives than me because I was working all the time. So the way that I was kind of made a deal with myself was, uh, and that was my way of still having some form of balance in my life. I mean, I think the word balance and that, that we could have a whole you know, two-hour conversation about the concept of balance because I think that, you know, people look at it in so many different ways. But for me, the only way I could even have a thought of balance was this 11 months, you know, just like going crazy as, an, you know, working as an entrepreneur and then that month off in these places. So um, my sister and I have been in all these amazing countries on The Amazing Race. Uh, and one of the countries we kind of quickly went through was Brazil and Argentina. And, uh, and I always liked like really... Um, immersing myself in whatever that country was known for. Mm-hmm. So I got a guidebook, and as you know very well, the first thing that, that came up and that Argentina is known for is the tango. The tango. And, uh, and so I had not read your book yet, um, and so I didn't know that it was possible to learn the tango at the level that you did. I was a little bit, I guess, uh, more... Uh, well, I just didn't have the rhythm of the dancing skills. And, and frankly, I didn't want to spend my month off learning something that I probably thought I would never use again. So I decided not to do tango. Instead, I turned to horse polo. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Texas, had ridden horses before. Argentina is really well known for polo. Uh, I'd always Huge. thought it was a very romantic, cool, like just adrenaline, you know, uh, sport. Um, and so I kind of signed up for polo camp. And so uh, it's a place called Latarde. And so I, I got there and, um, you know, after, you know, after being there for a few days, so I, I loved it. I mean, it was, I got bucked off the horse a bunch, almost went to the hospital the first week. Like it was dangerous, but it was like a good danger. Like it was just like every morning I woke up like, I'm going to tackle this horse and I'm going to hit this ball. And, uh, and so I did that for a couple of weeks. Um, but the other thing that Argentina is really well known for uh, is their Malbec wines, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and it, and if you like to drink red wine, Malbecs are fantastic, and they and so I decided to spend when I wasn't playing polo time in these different vineyards and 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 wine cafes, um, and so so in the wine cafes is when I ultimately met a few women that were doing some volunteer work, which ultimately led to kind of the idea that there were all these kids that didn't have shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm jumping a little forward in the story. Um, but I chose Argentina ultimately because it was my way of taking a month off and recharging and learning something new, which was polo. So, but let's, let's jump right into it. So okay. you mentioned meeting these women. Yeah, so I'm, you know, this is like, I'm, I've been in Argentina for about three weeks, you know, 
I mean, here you have Buenos Aires, uh, which is an amazing city. And there's some poverty and homeless and all the same things. We have problems in our major cities here in the United States. But you go an hour outside or even two hours outside the city where we were going a lot for the horses and the fields to play polo. Um, and as I was seeing this and, and kind of because I was going to and from the city almost every day for the polo and for getting out to the farms, I think it was, it was having an impression on me, but it wasn't something that was leading to like an action. You know, it was just kind of like, gosh, this, this is really intense. This is really sad. Like, I can't believe there's this much poverty just an hour from this great city. Now, almost everyone was speaking Spanish the whole time I was there, and I was trying to learn it, but I was not doing a good job. I mean, I could kind of get around with the Spanish that I learned in three weeks, but it was getting exhausting. I mean, you, you're much better at learning languages and learn very quickly, uh, as we know from reading your books. But for me, I had not been blessed with that ability yet, and so I was just, like, sitting at dinners most nights, listening to everyone speak Spanish, and it was like, Charlie Brown's teacher, just wah, 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 wah. I mean, that, and so, like, I'd be, like, playing mental solitaire in my head until they finally would, you know, someone could speak English to ask me a question. So when I hear three women speaking English, I'm just like, you know, a, you know, a bee on honey. I'm like, whoa, what are you guys doing? Da, da. And, like, it's so fun to talk to these, these women. And, and so they had been there for about the same amount of time as me. Uh, two were from the U.S., one was from the U.K., and, uh, and so they were going around to wealthy families in Buenos Aires, collecting these you know, slightly used shoes, and then taking them to these, these, these towns and these villages outside the city where kids needed shoes. And it was amazing because I would just been like for three weeks seeing kids on the streets, not in school clearly, and not wearing shoes. And, uh, and, I, was, and I was amazed by the fact that this was like the limiting factor in their education, but I also believed it because I had seen all these, all these kids on the streets. And so... You know, I'm a very curious person, and, and I've been playing polo for three weeks, and I was kind of, like, looking for something more to round out my month experience. And so I said, I said, like, I've never done anything like this, but could I come and help some way? You know, I mean, if you're going to be distributing all these shoes the next week, like, can you just use another set of hands? And they said, absolutely, we'd love for you to come. And, and when we got there, the kids had been told that they were going to get shoes this day. So there was already this incredible excitement in the air. And when we pulled in, I mean, the kids and some of the parents just started, like, kind of just appearing from all these nooks and crannies in this, in this town that was kind of right next to a garbage dump. I mean, exactly what you, you can picture if you've seen Slumdog Millionaire. I mean, that's what it, exactly what it felt like. Um, but there was incredible excitement and enthusiasm because they were getting these shoes. Um, and it was hard because the kids, a lot of them, or most of them, didn't even know what size they were. Because all they had was like a pair of flip-flops, and they didn't have a proper shoe. And so trying to get them fitted, and understand, you know, that was a challenge. But we worked through it. And after we, all the kids had shoes, we played soccer, and, you know, and, and we just had a great day. <laughs> it's like, it's like, he's like, that's pretty cool. I mean, he, was, he was actually kind of, you know, he thought it was, he first he thought it was cool that anyone was doing this for these kids because he knew the area. But second, he thought it was a, and it was, it was a nice gesture. Um, and so I was telling him about how awesome it was and how excited and how much fun. And, and, and he was listening really intently. And, and at this time, Leho's you know, young guy. He's 23 years old, a uh, great polo player, and he's kind of listening. And, and, I mean, he got so excited. I mean, it was actually his enthusiasm, the reason I'm pretty much sitting here, because he's like, this is an amazing idea. We have to do this. I mean, just, <laughs> just to put it in perspective, too, so the Argentines, especially the uh... – the porteños, yeah. right, the, who live in Capital Federal in Buenos Aires, they're a mixture of all sorts of immigrant blood. So you've got like a, 
a lot of Italian, which is yes. where they get the like, ah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, they get a all lot of Italian. And they got a little bit of German and then uh, all sorts of other bits and pieces. But yes, a very enthusiastic bunch. Yes. <laughs> and so Alejo, you know, professional polo player, 23 years old, doesn't know a thing about shoes, tells me, you, he, and it's not, it's, at first it's not we, it's you have to do this. Like, like yeah. your idea, you do it. He's like, but I will help you, you know. I, I will figure this out, you know. <laughs> and so literally by lunch, um, you know, I mean, he's, I mean he, he, this is a guy who has two cell phones, not because he has a work phone and a personal phone, because he has two conversations going on at all times. <laughs> I mean, it's like he's talking to so-and-so's brother and so-and-so's cousin and someone's in the and it's all in Spanish, so I don't understand anything he's saying, but it's, it's with enthusiasm. And then he'll yell at me, blah, blah, blah. and it's just like, this is what's happening. And so by lunch, he had already figured out someone, friend of a friend, who made Alpargatas like in their garage, you know, an hour away. And, and, and like before I can even say no, like we're going. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I mean, we are in this. And I'm supposed to leave in like four days. And, uh, and so, you know, in that long car ride there and back, because we really kind of talked about it, like my entrepreneur brain started thinking, it's like, you know, I think this, I think this could work. Um, because first off, I've been wearing this Alpargata. I love it. It's like super lightweight, super comfortable. If it gets wet, it dries right away. And there's nothing like this. I mean, the only shoes that are in this kind of canvas slip-on are like Converse or Vans, and they're heavier and they're clunkier. And, and I've worn those all, all these years, but this is a different. So I started to really kind of fall in love with the product as well as the idea. And, and then I, I recognized that like this didn't have to. It was the first time I had an idea in my life that I didn't think of as a business, really. Even though I was structuring it as we're going to sell something and give something and it's going to be a business, not a charity, I didn't think of, like, I need to do this to make money. Like, I had made some money. I, the driver's ed business was going great. Like, that, is, you know, is, is just, is, is just sales are just, are, are just skyrocketing. I'm, I'm a little bit less interested in, like, starting a business to make money. And, but I'm really thinking this could be fun. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I always try to, like, make sure that people really understand in terms of the beginning motivation. It was, this is, I was connected to these kids and I think we, I think this could work and help them. And it was going to be a ton of fun because now I was going to get, go back to Argentina four times a year. I mean, this is a great excuse to go to this country that I'd fallen in love with. And Alejo was so fun and other people were, you know, so long story short, we get, you know, we get to this guy, you know, and he's, and we're telling him like, no, we don't want apricotas. We want to have like, uh, a nice insole and arch support and all these things they are going to make the shoe cost like five times as much money. Yeah. And he's like, no one will ever buy this. Like, yeah. like no one will ever buy this. It's too expensive. And I'm like, no, but we got to make it, it's got to last long because these yeah. things wear out in a couple of weeks. And like, all, and just things that even though I had no experience in shoes, I just, as a customer, yeah. I would want the shoe to look this way, but I'd want it to perform a different way. And so, it, so, you know, after a couple of days of going back and forth, and meanwhile, I've now called my partners at the driver's ed business and told them it's not going to be a one-month vacation, but two months this year. And so I'm taking, I'm going to take another couple of weeks to see if I can figure out this shoe thing. And um, I hadn't told any of my friends what I was thinking of doing or anyone. And, and, and I, you know, I just, I, I just started like, calling, you know, my sister and girlfriends and, 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 and friends of mine that I thought, you know, would appreciate this shoe and not telling them the story initially. That was one of the key points. So selling the product on the product's merits? I knew, or... that, I knew that the story would get people excited. 
But I, I didn't want to like really go into making this a venture unless I felt the product could stand on its own. Mm-hmm. And so, and plus, I also didn't know how much to charge. So I needed to kind of get people's reaction. Like, do you like it, number one? Number two, how much would you pay for it? You know, because it was such a different shoe than anything else out there. Um, and so I spent a week or two really doing that. Can I ask you a question yeah. about that? You, so sure. uh, so you, you seem to have a long history uh, of doing market research by asking women. Yes. You got the fake. We didn't even cover Don't the, they buy most of the stuff? Well, you got like the fake. We didn't even cover the Theta Sorority. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like uh, collaboration with Easy Laundry. That's a whole separate episode. Uh, but did you ask primarily women about. I the, did. Even though I didn't think it was. Uh, I thought men and women would buy the shoes, but I just felt like I didn't know very much at all about shoes in my life at that point. I knew nothing. But what I did know is that every woman in my life, spend a lot of money and time on shoes. Yeah. Like, I mean, whether it was my mom, my sister, my girlfriend, they were always buying shoes. Yeah. I never really saw my guy friends buying shoes. I mean, they, <laughs> obviously they had to because they wore shoes, but it wasn't like they talked about it. So I figured, like, let's go where you know, this, yeah. this conversation is already happening. Yeah. Let's just enter into the conversation. Right. And so that's why uh, initially my, my kind of quick market research was, was women. But it was so cool because I remember this time – I had several girls over to the house or the apartment at the time in Venice, and they thought they were coming over for like this dinner party that I was going to arrange. But instead, I had all these shoes on the table, and I and I and they were like, "What's going on?" And I was like, "Well, we're going to have dinner, but before I want to show <laughs> to you to earn the, your dinner, yeah, to earn your <laughs> earn your dinner. There is no free dinner. Um, is uh, is I want to hear what you think about these shoes because I'm thinking of selling them. They come from Argentina, and I didn't tell them about the story, and. As I saw them in my living room, trying them on and getting pretty positive feedback of they're cute, they're comfortable, I'd wear them with this. I mean, they were kind of talking amongst themselves. Then I pulled out a bunch of photos from my trip in this village, and I told them the story. And at this point, I've never seen women so excited to buy a pair of shoes. I mean, they bought, like, three pairs each. I mean, they were, like, telling me, like, oh, I'm going to call my friend. She's got to get a pair. I mean, it was like this just, like, you've never Feeding frenzy. Feeding frenzy. And it was because of the story. It was because yeah. of the idea of one for one. Is because up until that point, they had never been offered an opportunity to buy something for themselves that they usually feel guilty about, right? Because, yeah. I mean, women buying shoes it doesn't always you know, end in happiness. A lot of it's guilt because uh, <laughs> they have too many already. This time, they had no guilt. It was like the guilt-free shopping of the century, right? <laughs> so, so they were buying multiple pairs. Um, they were telling me other other you know girlfriends of theirs they would get to buy them some of the girls worked in pr and were telling what stores to be in i mean it was just like immediately i was like wow this we've stumbled i mean it was like i hit a nerve um and and so that was really encouraging um and that's what kind of got the initial kind of um the the initial sales going and helped me figure out how much to charge for them and the interesting thing about the charging and this is i think is like at some level why in the dictionary under the word karma there should be a picture of Tom's is, you know, we charged, we, we created a model that was basically to break even, not to make money. So we were like, okay, we want, our whole goal was to get as many kids as shoes possible. So we wanted to charge a price that would be the least amount that we could charge a customer and still be able to pay for another pair of shoes and have an organization. So even though we weren't a nonprofit, we went into this thinking that we're not really, profit is not the motivation. You weren't maximizing your margins. Yes. So, but the thing is, is we were making all the shoes by hand in garages in Argentina. 
which turns out is very expensive, <laughs> right? So, so we're making these shoes. So when, when Tom started to take off and all of a sudden we were selling not, you know, 100 pairs here and there, but thousands, tens of thousands, and then millions, yeah. we started large-scale manufacturing. Our costs went from here to here. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we had this hugely profitable business. <laughs> and it was like, how did, we, how did we get here? I mean, it was truly, I'll never forget. The accidental when, profitable business. It, was an, it really was this crazy moment when I met with this factory when the first time we were moving from, like, garages to factory. And I was like, um, so how much per pair? And he gave me a price. And I'm like, is that for per shoe or per pair? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, it was crazy how much less it was. And then we realized, okay, we can do the giving, we can do that, and we can have a good business, and we can make money. And that was like, that was the aha moment of, okay, this is what I'm going to, yeah. you know, put all my energy behind. So in the very beginning, what, what names did you consider for the company, and how did it end up on Tom's? Yeah, that's a great question. So, And how many people think your name is Tom? Most no. people think my name is Tom. I mean, that's the number one question. Like, I mean, you know, you know that Tim's a great interviewer because it's been an hour and 45 minutes until he's asked me that question. Nine times out of ten, that's the leading first question because it's so obvious. Um, so the name Tom's. So I wore this shoe today in particular because, A, it's one of my favorite shoes we've ever made, and it's also one of the first shoes we ever made 10 years ago. And, 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 and so what happened was is I originally called them tomorrow's shoes. And the reason they were called tomorrow's shoes is that we thought we could make a better tomorrow by selling a pair today and giving a pair tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So that was our, our pitch, was if you buy a pair today, we promise you that we will give a pair tomorrow to a child in need. And so, thank you. And so that was, and so for the first couple weeks, they were called Tomorrow's Shoes. We're down in Argentina, we're making them, whatever. And then we start looking at all the other kind of casual shoes in the market. Because now we're starting to think about this a little bit more like, okay, we got to, you know, we got to figure out like how we're going to brand this thing. And, and, and so we're looking at the shoe, and this shoe in particular, there's not a lot of places to brand it. But the most natural place would be on the back. And there's no way I could fit the word tomorrow's on the back <laughs> of the shoe. It just wouldn't fit, no matter how little the font got. So I said, okay, we'll call it Tom's Shoes for a Better Tomorrow. And so Tom's coming from the word tomorrow. And, and we chose the Argentine flag because that's where they were being made. And we got rid of the sun and put the Tom's in there. And, you know, and that's how it, that's how it started. Um, and that's how the name came. But, you know, it's funny because, I mean, literally, I mean, still to this day, people call me Tom. And especially in the beginning, I mean, before anyone knew what I looked like and they just assumed that there was this Tom. And, 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 and one of my favorite, favorite stories is um, in order to sell the shoes, you know, it's like anything else as an entrepreneur. Like the story is as important as the product. You got to make sure you have a good product. But, you know, you've got to convey your enthusiasm. And so... When I first got into Nordstrom, which was pretty early considering how small a business we were, uh, they said, well, well, we'll sell your shoes in these stores in, like, Southern California, but you have to commit to going, like, every Saturday and literally sitting there next to them and, like, telling the story because the story was what was so interesting. And so I said, fine, okay, I'll do, I'm going to do whatever, you know. Like, so I would go, and I'd never forget this one manager. I got there on Saturday morning, bright early. I'm all excited. And I'm like, hey, I'm Blake. I'm, I'm here for, for, to sell the Tom's shoes. And she looks at me and she goes, oh, man, we have a problem. And I was like, 
What's the problem? She goes, we've been advertising for like a week that Tom is coming. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I am Tom. <laughs> so so I, I used to carry my laptop. Everyone like quickly have it up. Like, that's who you think Tom is. Look, that's me. Like, we're the same person. So the times that we live in right now, it's very romanticized to go out and raise hundreds of millions of dollars in venture financing with something very complicated. Yes. The businesses that have worked for you that we've talked about started off addressing a frustration or a need of your own, simple and low capital requirements, at least in the very beginning. No, the only business I ever raised money for was the business that failed and that was the reality channel. Yeah. So, I mean, that was the thing about Tom's is we never raised money. And, and because we started small, 250 pairs, then it was 1,000 pairs, then it was 2,000 pairs. And as we started growing, we were able to, you know, to get you know, bank loans and things like that to finance inventory. But, um, I mean, that's one of the things I think that allowed us to preserve who we are today 10 years later and 75 million shoes given and all these things happen because – we didn't have that influence that comes from investors and then their demands and how fast you got to grow and things you got to do. So I always say to entrepreneurs, like, there are some businesses that inherently you have to raise money for. Right. But the, every day, if you have a good idea and you can execute, every day that you wait, your idea and your company becomes more valuable. And the more leverage you have. And the more leverage you have. The first time I saw someone wearing Tom's was like a really special moment. You know, it's kind of like, Maybe uh, an artist the first time sees their painting hanging in a gallery. You know, I mean, anyone who's been in the, created something of, of any magnitude is proud when they see it, especially if they see it on someone that's a stranger that bought it without you, like, begging them on the floor of Nordstrom, right? <laughs> so about four or five months after we started Tom's, and this is before we're even in Nordstrom, we're only selling them online. Uh, and mainly the only, or the only people I've seen wearing them are my neighbors, because all of our neighbors in the neighborhood thought it was cool that we were kind of running the shoe company out of the apartment in Venice. So they're buying them. My interns and my family, of course. Um, and, and, and I was in New York City, and I would, had actually had a very bad week. I had gone trying to get new customers, like retailers, like the American Rag, uh, and I had just struck out. Like, I mean, New Yorkers wanted to have nothing to do with the shoe. And, and so I was going back to L.A. kind of a little bit with my, you know, tail between my legs. I, was, I wasn't even wearing Toms. I was wearing some, you know, running shoes or something because I'd gone for a run in the park earlier that morning. And then I was, like, rushing to the airport. And I get to the American Airlines check-in counter. And I'm doing the kiosk. And uh, not checking bags, just doing it quickly. And I look to my right, and there's this woman. And she's wearing a red pair of Toms, mid-30s, like wearing a pair of jeans, a pair of red Toms. And I'm like super excited. And, but, I'm, but at the same time, I'm like really curious to like, where'd you get those? What do you think about them? Like, I mean, my, my marketing head, my focus group head just goes straight to it. And so I say, excuse me, um, I couldn't help but notice these red shoes you're wearing. They're, they're really cool. What are they? And I'm still doing the check-in because I don't want to act like I'm too interested, right, and give it away. <laughs> And, and, and she looks at me, and her eyes kind of widen, and she goes, they're Tom's, Tom's shoes. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, you know, and that's great. And, and I'm kind of like just taking, you kind of wait and see what she says. And, 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 I, and I could tell she's like looking at me like, no, I have more to tell. So I kind of turned her, and, and she looks at me like really intently, and she goes, no, I don't think you understand. This is the most amazing company in the world. 
When I bought this pair of shoes, they gave a pair to a child in Argentina. And I'm like, oh, really? He's like, and then she continues. She goes, and there's this guy. He lives in Los Angeles. I think he lives on a boat. And <laughs> he's eight feet tall. <laughs> and she literally starts telling me my life story. Word for word, like with more passion than my mom tells it. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And so she's going on and on about this and that. And, 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 I, and I, at some point, I was like, oh, my gosh, like I have to tell her who I am now. And, like, and there's other people listening. I mean, she's animated. And so I say to her, I say, uh, excuse me, actually, sorry to interrupt, but, um, you know, I'm Blake. I started Tom's. And she just pauses. And it's like deer in headlights. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. She looks at me. She looks at me again. She goes, why did you cut your hair? (laughs) But the interesting thing about that question and what I learned a huge business lesson in this question, the reason she knew I cut my hair is she had watched every video on YouTube about our shoe giving. Wow. You know, this is right 2006, right when YouTube, same year YouTube launched. And because, you know, there wasn't a lot of content on there, our videos got a lot of views back then. Because there wasn't, and, and she'd watched it and seen it. And so I realized that she wasn't just a customer. I mean, she took the time out of her check-in to tell me the entire story. I mean, she was an evangelist for Tom's. And, and, and so, like, so much that, like, she, you know, kind of didn't recognize me because I had cut my hair short like this. And before in the video, it was really long and bushy. And so it was so funny because on the way home, I realized, like, we didn't need to focus on marketing and advertising. That's not what got this girl to buy a pair of shoes. We need to focus on doing our giving and making sure that content was easily shareable with our customers. Because if she was this passionate to tell a stranger at the airport, surely she had posted on Facebook about it, tweeted about it, probably bought a pair for her friend for Christmas or whatever. And so it was an amazing experience for me. And it really has kind of dictated our whole philosophy on marketing for the past 10 years. And that is, if we do what we say we're going to do, and we create interesting content that allows our customers to share with pride what they've done, because it's really them. And we set it up. But unless we sell shoes, we don't give them away. So it's what they've done. Then the, the, the momentum can build. And I think that's why we had this exponential growth. So this is, a, this is a related one. This is actually from the uh, extended family known as the Internet. Uh, <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> this is not like the drunk, angry uncle, Good, though. Thank you. This is a nicer <laughs> member of that uh, Christmas party. So Daniel Roddick, I think that's his name. And I'm going to shorten this a little bit. But <clears throat> there's a term I've heard used before called WFIO moments, pronounced <laughs> WIFIO, which stands for we're fucked, it's over. <laughs> and, you know, essentially... When your business, it seems like it's on the brink of death or failure, running out of cash, PR crisis, move by competitor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the We've question, and it goes on. This yeah. is a long question, yeah. but I was just wondering if you had any particular Rufies. examples. Rufies. Yeah, from Tom's. If there were any sort of existential threats when you're like, oh, boy. There's, there's one that just, I mean, is clear as day. This is uh, in the second year. We now have made that transition from making them in garages to a big factory. Mm-hmm. and knowing nothing about how to negotiate with factories, and factories can smell naivete like a mile away, uh, we totally got screwed over by a factory. And we had taken all these big orders. We had taken all the cash that we had. I mean, not just Tom's, but like me personally, out of my personal checking account to order all these shoes, knowing 
that we were going to sell them for a profit and then we would be able to, and so it was just a, it was a cash flow thing. And I'll never forget, I was with my dad, um, and it was actually the day I was getting the sailboat that I was going to live on. I lived on a sailboat for six years. It's a whole other story about essentialism and, and not having stuff that you don't need in your life and simplifying your life, which I was very intent on doing after spending so much time in Argentina. Um, so I'm going to get the boat with my dad. Like, it's supposed to be a great day in my life. Um, and I get a call, and it's Sean, actually, the guy you saw. And he's like, we have a problem. And I'm like, what? He's like, every single sole on the shoes are falling off. Ugh. Like, they're not, like, not good quality. Like, they're falling off. Like, the glue they used at the factory got hot on the way here, whatever. It's, like, it's disintegrating. And, like, all these people are expecting their shoes. And all your money is in this. And, like, we don't have money to order my shoes. I mean, it was definitely a whiffy moment, <laughs> if there ever was one. And, and you know, it was, it was I, I really did think it was going to be over. Because, I mean, it was, like, it was, it was, it was just, we, one, we were going to call these people and say we didn't able to deliver. And it would take weeks, if not months, to get them. And this is at the point which we now have big customers, you know, like the Urban Outfitters and Nordstrom's. And they don't just like take this news lightly. And the second was, is all our cash was in there. I mean, there was no more cash order our shoes. I mean, ultimately the way we saved it was we were able to convince another factory that if they would make the shoes without any initial payment, that we would be able to pay them within 90 days and we would switch all of our business to them. And they did, and they were a great factory for a long time. But I didn't even know that was a possibility. That, that came after like days of like, probably heavy drinking and like, you know, putting myself in a, in a hole and wish I couldn't come out. But yeah, I mean, and I think every business has that. And ultimately, if you get through it, it makes you stronger. Yeah. But the truth is, is it probably kills a lot of businesses too. In retrospect, were there any warning signs or anything that you could have, are there ways you could have avoided that? In that particular case, I don't think so because we didn't have the brand reputation or the cash flow to have any leverage over factories, but we needed factories. And at the same time, I just, I, we didn't have the experience level to know how to protect ourselves from that. Now, in hindsight, there's lots of things you can do to protect yourself with factories and payment terms and all these things. Um, so I think it was just a situation where we were unlucky and, and, and a factory kind of took advantage of us. And, and they probably thought they would never get another order anyways, so they didn't take it too seriously. And so if you were advising somebody, um, and I know this is going to be a small percentage of the audience, yeah. but actually, I mean, a growing percentage when yeah. you have people now launching businesses on Kickstarter, it's like, sure. okay, good news, yeah. bad news, right? Yeah. Like, we've never Absolutely. made anything, but we have 5,000 orders. Yeah. We've, sold, we've told a really good story. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who's looking at manufacturing mm. for the first time? I mean, I would say the best thing to do when you're manufacturing for the first time is have the manufacturing as close to you physically as you can, even if it's a huge difference in margin, difference in price. Because what you're trying to do in the beginning is prove a model. You're not trying to necessarily make money. Mm-hmm. So if, you can, if, you, if it costs 80% more to do it in your hometown than doing it overseas, I would say do it in your hometown where you can watch it, be there, you know, then you don't have the surprises. The, the thing that kills you with manufacturing, and especially from a far off place, is the surprise when it comes not being what you thought it is, and by that time it's too late. Right. So the nice thing is, is, is if you're, or you just move to wherever you're manufacturing. I mean, one of my favorite, you know, entrepreneurs, um, 
is uh, Fernando and Santiago who started Reef Sandals. And these are Argentines, actually, as well, that I got to know through the years being in the shoe business. And, and Santiago moved to Brazil and lived, like, at the factory for those early years of Reef to literally watch every shoe being made. And that's why their quality was so good, and that's why they <laughs> built such a great company. So sometimes, if you can't make it locally, yeah. you, you go there. But, but manufacturing is where most, I would say, of these businesses never get off the ground or end up imploding is because you just do it's one strike and you're out typically. Yeah, that, that's the case where you really have to have boots on the ground. Yeah. I was talking to a buddy of mine who's the founder or maybe co-founder of a apparel brand called Sitka. Okay. So it's kind of like if you want to think of the, the Lululemon for hunting and outdoor gear, okay. really high quality stuff. And he went to China for uh-huh. the same reason. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a guy, I've had some, some drinks with him. And the way that he negotiated his terms that he needed, because they were like, yeah, can't be done. No, like everything's going to be late. Similar to it, was just yeah. like, oh my God, this is an existential crisis. Yeah. So he went to China and he sat there and he had a translator and they're doing like, cheers, ah, cheers to this, cheers to the chairman, cheers to this. And he's like, do they have to drink every time I do a cheers? And, mm-hmm. and, the, and the translator's like, yes, they, they'd be rude not to. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, okay. And so he and just, just he got everybody completely blitzed. And then the big boss is like, definitely next week, no problem. <laughs> Do you have a recording of it? And, uh, and so he got his gear on time. Anyway, not my recommended negotiating tactic necessarily. There are books and so on you could read. If I lost the material possessions or the wealth or the ability to, to do some of the things that my family gets to do, you know, it kind of goes back to what Tim was saying, the guy with the, the sleeping bag and the oatmeal. Like, I feel like I've, you know, there's enough people that would help me get that oatmeal in that backpack and that sleeping bag. And, and me and my family would probably still live a great life. I mean, the thing that I've learned the most, I think it's the most, from my travels around the world. And I've been to every country and seen almost every hardship that, that is imaginable, is sometimes the people who are living the most poverty, the most rural, are also the happiest. And the reason is, is but the reason is, is because their life is so simple that they spend their time in relationships. Like, it's amazing to see. I'm very close with many families in Ethiopia because we spend a lot of time there. We do manufacturing there. And when you get to rural Ethiopia, you see the amount of time that they are just spend in laughter and games and playing. And it's because there's, there's not much else to do because they don't have anything else. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, basically their only daily chores is making sure they have water and food. And other than that, it's just all about relationship and, and, and loving on one another. And so I think that, you know, um, it's a tricky time we live in now because we get caught in the cycle of having to, you know, to support these lifestyles that we create. And oftentimes we spend so much money trying to do that that we don't end up enjoying the life that we have. And mm-hmm. so I will say that that's one thing that in my um, maturing and, and learning and studying over the years, I have gotten uh, much better at and put much more premium on. And I don't work 11 months, you know, lights out and then just for that one month off anymore. I make sure that I am experiencing. I mean, yesterday, yeah. Tim texted me. <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> he texted me to have a pre call, and I was surfing all day in Santa Barbara. Didn't have my phone on. Didn't get back to him until 10 o'clock at night because I was like, you know what? Like, I had a 
couple really long days before this. I want to have a lot of fresh energy for this today. So I took the whole day and went surfing with one of my best friends and, you know, spent time all morning with my son. And so those are the things that are important. And it, those, and, and I didn't always realize that. So, so I think that, you know, you really, you can't lose everything when what you care about are the people and the memories you have. Ladies and gentlemen, Blake Mikoski. Oh, thanks. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. I've used 99designs for years for all sorts of graphic design needs. Whether you need a logo, website, book cover, or anything else, 99designs was created to make great designs accessible to everyone and to make the process of getting designs much, much easier. So when I first started out, for instance, testing prototype covers and getting prototype covers for the four-hour body, I want the contest route. That is one option. This is a great solution if you're looking for fast, affordable design work and the ability to choose from dozens of options risk-free. Let's say you need something late night, quick turnaround. Well, people in other time zones, other countries can also help you solve that problem. Since then, I've worked with 99designs on a separate path or a different option and uh, that is the one-to-one project service. So, in a number of cases, and I'll give you one example, when I wanted to create the cover for my audiobook, The Tao of Seneca, this was a very important project to me, I decided to use their one-to-one project service. And with this service, you can invite a specific designer to your project, agree on a price, and then work together until you're satisfied. And they allow you to iterate and provide feedback and all this stuff. And I haven't shared it yet, but we also got some incredibly good really some of the best illustrations I've ever seen from using this one-to-one project service with a handful of different designers and illustrators. It blew my mind. 99designs makes this all very easy and efficient. So you can check out the Tao of Seneca design and other work that I and your fellow listeners, for that matter, have done on 99designs at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. And right now, you can get a free $99 upgrade on your first design. Again, that's 99designs dot com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Inktel. I've used them personally. Ever since I wrote the four hour work week, I've been asked over and over again how I choose to delegate tasks, how I do 80-20 analysis, and so on. At the root of many of those decisions is a simple question, actually two questions. Number one, how can I invest money to improve my quality of life? I use that in investing as well. The second, how can I spend a little money or moderate money to save significant time? Inktel is one of those investments. They're a turnkey solution for all of your imaginable customer care needs. 
I used Inktel during the launch of the 4-Hour Body, which was very, very involved, and they provided 24-7 customer service for my Land Rush campaign because it was critical for me to take care of every person who purchased my books and participated. This allowed me to focus on the things that I am better at, my strengths, like the marketing plan that we'd worked on for six months, implementing that. Intel trains their experienced customer service reps to know your business and your products inside and out and make your customers raving fans. They answer more than a million customer service requests every year, and they can do so across all platforms including email, phone, social media, text, even chat. Leaving your customers with poor service or just mediocre service, which by the way, in a competitive pool is a huge liability. Long wait times or unanswered messages carries a massive cost and risk to your business. Uh, Inktel removes the logistics and headaches of this type of communication, allowing you to focus on your strengths and grow your business. It can be a real competitive advantage, and I see many, many e-commerce companies and tech companies thinking of customer service as a good enough checkbox or an afterthought. And just like Airbnb, use design in innovative ways to be a competitor and to win, you can do the same thing with customer service. So as a listener of this podcast, you can get up to $10,000 off big discount. $10,000 off your startup fees and costs by visiting inktel.com forward slash Tim. So check it out. For more info, go to inktel.com, I-N-K-T-E-L.com forward slash Tim.